The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 13. We left off in this middle of this narrative of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. I'm going to read verses 12 to 20. 12 to 20. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments... He resumed his place and said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus, in this passage, lays out something that is very unique to the Lord Jesus Christ, very unique in terms of his leadership philosophy. In the Old Testament, there was a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar. And one night he had a dream. This is in Daniel chapter 2. And when he woke up, he gave all of his counselors and advisors an impossible task. He called them to the palace and he said, I want you to give me an interpretation of my dream. And they said, okay, we can do that. He says, but here's the catch. I'm not going to tell you the dream. He said, no man can do that. We can't tell you what the dream is and its interpretation. Well, no one is able to do this. And Daniel hears of this, and he hears that Nebuchadnezzar is going to put all of his counselors to death. And so he tells the, the head of the counselors, the, the advisors, he says, there is a God in heaven who can reveal these things. Let me go talk to the king. And he goes in and he talks to the king. And he says, let me tell you what the dream is. God, who is in heaven, has revealed it to me. He said, in your dream you saw a big statue. And that statue had a head of gold. It had shoulders and arms of silver. It had a torso and thigh of bronze. And it had legs and feet of iron. And then the feet 
are iron and clay. And Daniel said, this is the interpretation of that dream. The head of gold represents you. This is Babylon. This is your empire. The shoulders represent the Medo-Persian empire of silver, which is going to come after you. Remember Cyrus and, and Darius? The torso of bronze represents the Greek empire, uh, Alexander the Great, and, and the leaders that came after him. And then finally, the leg of iron represents Rome and its rule. But then he says in the dream, there's a great stone, a stone that is hewed out of the mountain without hands. And this stone comes and obliterates the entire statue. All of the kingdoms are brought to nothing. And then the dust of that statue are carried away by the wind. Daniel says there is a kingdom coming like that, that God is going to establish. Do you remember what Jesus came preaching when he started his ministry? Remember what he said? Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What kingdom was he talking about? He's talking about the kingdom that was prophesied by Daniel and, and all of the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, here's the thing. Jesus' kingdom is completely different from all those kingdoms that came before. And there is a defining principle of Jesus' kingdom. And this principle has always surprised people. It even surprises many Christians today. And that principle is the principle of service. That is what makes Jesus' kingdom completely and utterly different from the world's kingdoms. I want you to turn to the left to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. There's this really almost humorous incident that occurs in the Gospels. I'm sure you know, John and James later were like, Matthew, did you really have to include this, this story? Because in this story, their mom comes to Jesus. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross. And their mom comes. She grabs James and John. She says, you come with me. You know, moms are always watching out for their kids. It doesn't, it doesn't, even, it doesn't end even when they're apostles, does it? And she shows up before Jesus, and she says, Jesus, I want you to guarantee that my boys here, these sons of thunder here, I want you to guarantee that they're going to sit on your right and on your left in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says to her, that's, that's not my position to grant. That belongs to the Father. But then he says something uh, really interesting, really interesting. Look at verse 25. He, he calls the disciples together. And, and remember, he's on his way to Jerusalem, establishing his kingdom. And this is what he says to them. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, this is how the kingdoms of the world operate. They operate with one big ruler who's over everybody, 
I call it the red carpet principle. The red carpet principle. And they exercise authority, dominance, influence, leadership, and they expect everyone to bow at their command, to be at their beck and call. What I say, you will do. And these leaders, if you study the the kingdoms and the leaders that have been influential in so many of these kingdoms in the world, they have these really delusions of grandeur many times. Uh, Patton, uh, General Patton, thought he was a reincarnated warrior from the past. You know, he kind of just believed his own press and, and, and somehow convinced himself that he had fought, I don't know, in the Punic Wars or something and, and been successful. But these delusions of grandeur that they are great and everyone is to be under their command and their authority. Alexander the Great, uh, his mom told him from, you know, as a little boy, she kind of brainwashed him. She said, you are going to be a world ruler. You are going to conquer, conquer the East. And he kind of just took off with that mindset. And that's how many of the leaders of the world are. Uh, it's red carpet leadership. And I say that because you, you know the, the practice of the red carpet, right? That you you know, a dignitary comes, you roll out the red carpet. I always thought that was more symbolic. When I was in the Marine Corps at the Air Station Iwakuni, I was on the, uh, the deck and uh, a plane was about to land and I saw two Marines come and they started rolling out this red carpet. And I said, what, what's that? They said, oh yeah, a, a, a senator's coming. We're rolling out the red carpet for him. So it, it's a thing. It's real. You roll it out and then they, they get off their plane they're able to walk on the red carpet. I'm somebody special. I'm somebody important. I'm somebody great. And that principle is completely opposite of what our Lord establishes. Look at verse 26. It shall not be so among you. In other words, you don't operate this way in the church, in the kingdom of God. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And then verse 27, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Notice what Jesus says in verse 26. He says, if you would be great, the Greek word is genomai. It means to become. It means to become something that you're not. It means to be changed into something. He said, if you want to become great, if you want to if you want to be established as great in the kingdom, if you want to be that in, the, in Christ's future kingdom forever and ever, you must be, and he uses the word diakonos, a table waiter, you must be a servant if you want to become great. He says, if you want to be high-ranking, high if you want to be first in my kingdom, he takes it even a step lower. He says, you must be a doulos. You must be a slave. So that's the way of advancement in his kingdom, that you become a bond slave. You become a diakonos. He says in Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So let me ask you a question, friend. To what degree does that describe your life? Are you a diakonos? Are you a servant? Do you see yourself as a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm reminded Paul over and over and over again, you know, starts his letters, Philippians, 
you know, Paul and Timothy, do losses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see yourself as a slave of Christ and therefore a servant to him and a servant to his church? Now, notice what's really remarkable about this. It's not just us who is supposed to be like this. Look at the next verse. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 28, even as the Son of Man, now talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, look, this is, this is me. Who do you think I am? Why do you think I'm here? I'm here on a servant mission. I want you to turn to the left again to the book of Isaiah. Turn all the way to the prophets to Isaiah chapter 42. Listen very carefully to this. Jesus did not just come to serve. He came as a servant. It's his identity. That's who he is. Look at Isaiah 42.1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now turn to the right to chapter 49. Verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in his eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. And then one more. Chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. So turn back now to, to John 13. The Lord came as a servant, as a servant to, the, to, to Yahweh, as a servant to the Father, but also as a servant to us. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, next to verse 12, I want you to write in the margin, the Lord's practice. The Lord's practice. Because here you see how our Lord acted on a continual basis. You see his practice of life. In the ancient world, when you would come into a house, if you were wealthy, a slave would take off your sandals and he would wash your dirty feet. That was the custom. And you remember Jesus in the middle of this final Passover meal gets up and takes on 
uh, takes off his outer garments and wraps a towel around his waist and washed the disciples' feet. And then you see verse 12. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? He's saying, look, I have shown you something really special. You know, if you're you're a disciple sitting here at this table, you're never going to forget this. You're never going to forget this picture, this awkward moment when the Lord in the middle of this final Passover feast just gets up and takes a towel in a, base, in a basin and washes the disciples' feet. You, they will never forget this. And Jesus says, do you realize what has taken place? And if you think about what has taken place, it's really astounding. It's really astounding because as you looked at last week, Paul says in Colossians 1.16, for by him, by Christ, all things were created, all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So if you are going to write a script for how you think the God-man should function on this earth, if you gave this idea to Hollywood, they would come up with something like Captain Marvel or Achilles or Superman, right? What they wouldn't ever come up with, not in a million years, is the God of the universe taking a towel and washing the disciples' feet. They would never come up with this. Listen to what Paul says. This is Philippians 2.6. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he took on our humanity, and he humbled himself, and he became a lowly person. He, he was not a person who inhabited palaces and throne rooms. He was born in a stable. He lived in Nazareth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he, he enjoyed all the, the authority and glory of heaven. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's chilling to think about that he voluntarily served, served the Lord and served us, isn't it? I was thinking this week about the Garden of Gethsemane when our Lord was arrested. You remember Judas goes to the, the, the high priest's guard, leads them in to the garden, and he says, I'm going to show you who the Lord is by kissing him, and that, that way you'll know exactly who the Messiah is. And when they come into the garden, Peter takes his sword and he cuts off the high priest's servant's ear named Malchus. And Jesus takes the ear from the ground, puts it back on his head, heals him. And do you remember what he said? This is what Matthew records. He says, Peter, put away your sword. 
Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Here's the point. Jesus voluntarily gave himself up. He endured the ignominy of the cross, the pain of the cross, all of it, to give his life as a ransom for many, as a servant. Verse 13, look at verse 13. You call me teacher, or you could say rabbi. There were many people who were called rabbis or teachers, but notice this next word, and Lord, curios, and you are right, for so I am. Jesus is saying, listen, I am your teacher, and I'm also your Lord. I am also the one who has authority over you. Paul says in Ephesians 1.22, he put all things, God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus Christ, when he commands you to come to him, he bids you that you would follow him and repent from your old way of life. Die to yourself, take up your cross and follow him. The gospel demands repentance. We've lost that, haven't we? The gospel demands that you not just believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. The gospel demands that you have a new mind towards Christ and a new mind towards who you once were. It's called repentance. It's not just, oh, well, I raise my hand when the evangelist Ask, do I believe that Jesus died for my sins? That, that doesn't constitute conversion. Conversion means, as my Uncle Val once told me, that you surrender your life to Christ. That you take up your cross and you follow him. That's true faith. That's true repentance. And Jesus reminds his disciples of this in this moment. He says, look, yeah, you call me teacher and Lord, and so I am. And so you need to listen to what I'm about to tell you because I'm about to give you an imperative and an injunction. So right next to verse 14, the Lord's principle. This is what our Lord tells us. This is what our Lord tells the disciples. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So our Lord gives the disciples the general principle of discipleship, the general principle of the kingdom of God, the general principle of the Christian life. This is the operating factor. He says, you are to wash people's feet as I have washed people's feet. Now, Maybe when you were in high school English class, you learned a fancy word called synecdoche. Anybody remember that word? Hardly anybody. Okay. So synecdoche is a word that stands for much more. It, it stands for what it says, but it stands for much more than what it says. For example, last weekend I was at the A&M football game. Unfortunately, we lost Alabama, but A&M has a tradition called the 12th man. 
The 12th man goes all the way back to the 1920s when Texas A&M was playing a school, and basically the entire football team got injured, and there was a basketball player in the stands named E. Keen Gill, and he said, I'll go in. And so they suited him up, and he went and stood on the sidelines, and they said, he's the 12th man. Well, as A&M tradition goes, if something happens once, it's bound to become a tradition. Uh, the entire student body ended up adopting the title, the 12th man. And now, the entire student body for every home football game, they stand for the entirety of the football game. They never sit down. They never sit down, representing the fact that everyone is ready and willing to go in for the team. So, who's the 12th man? Well, the 12th man's E. King Gill. But when we talk about the 12th man, it stands for something much more. Now, when people talk about the 12th man, they think, oh, it's the entire student body at, at, at A&M. So, Foot washing. Think of foot washing like that. Yeah, it, it, foot washing refers to when Jesus washed the feet, but it stands for something much more. As far as we know, Jesus only washed the disciples' feet one time, but his entire life and ministry was foot washing. It was all service. It was all displaying acts of service. And so what Jesus is saying is, is just as I have exhibited servanthood to you, so you ought to display servanthood to one another. Notice this ought in verse 14 is in the present tense. This is the ongoing principle of the Christian life. You are to do this constantly. This is what we are to do. We are to serve one another. When I was in fifth and sixth grade, there was a, a, a basketball uh, training group. It was a, a Christian basketball training group that met over in Highland Park, and I would go over there, and we all wore the same shirt. We all wore this shirt that said, Be Like Christ. I love that shirt. I think I wore that shirt until my sophomore year in high school, even though I got in sixth grade. By the, by the end, I you know, was just busting out of it, but, but I love the message of that shirt, Be Like Christ. And you're never more like Christ than when you become a foot washer and a servant, both to Christ and to others. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, For I have given you an example that you also should do. Notice that present tense. Just as I have done to you. So Jesus has given this example, this tangible example to the disciples of servanthood. Now many have asked, many have wondered through the centuries, is Jesus institu instituting a new sacrament or ordinance of foot washing here? Ed Sanderlin a couple weeks ago asked me, he said, you know, when you preach this, are you going to bring up all the deacons and the elders and turn around and wash their feet as an example? And, uh, you know, th this is something that you see regularly, you see people do. Uh, pope Francis, when he became the pope a few years ago, uh, went to a prison and he washed the feet of 12 inmates. Uh, lots of my ancestors were Quakers, believe it or not. And uh, my great-grandfather was 
uh, kicked out of the Quaker church for baptizing someone. He became a Baptist, so he found the right theology in the end. Um, but in Quaker churches, they still practice foot washing. Um, Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 5.10, talking about widows who are to enter the service of the church, he says to admit the ones, he says, that have washed the feet of the saints. So apparently foot washing was a practice in the early New Testament church. But rather than understanding this as a sacrament, that's something that we, we do regularly, we are to understand this as a life principle. This is something that we do all the time. Here's a commentator I thought was really helpful on this, William Hendrickson. This is what he says, quote, Although no sacrament has been instituted to be literally copied, this does not remove the fact that under certain conditions, those who may wish to show their hospitality in this manner are doing the proper thing. And he quotes 1 Timothy 5.10. It should, however, be stressed that what Jesus had in mind was not an outward right, but an inner attitude, that of humility and eagerness to serve, end quote. So that's the principle. It's, it's a heart that says, I am God's servant, and therefore I am a servant to his people. And that, by the way, is our fundamental identity as believers, that we are Christ's bondservants, that we are his slaves, we are servants. Now, just to be clear, so that we know that this applies to everybody. Jesus wants to make sure that there's no loopholes. Look at this next statement in verse 16. Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. This was a proverb that Jesus used quite a bit. Uh, John 15, 20, Matthew 10, 24, Luke 6, 40. But what Jesus is saying here is that no one is greater than their master. No messenger is greater than the, the one who sends them with the message. Is any one of you greater than the Lord Jesus Christ? No, you're not. You are not greater than your master. You are not greater than the one who sends you. Therefore, this principle applies to you because if it applies to Christ, it applies to us. So it's comprehensive, this is to be who we are. We are to be servants. Notice verse 17. Notice how Jesus applies this principle in terms of heavenly reward and blessing. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Sometimes, just sometimes, the gap between knowledge and in action is great, is it not? James said, be not merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. How many Christians affirm that we are to be servants, but practically speaking in their lives, treat other people like dust? It should not be so. And Jesus says this, he says, blessed, makarioi, it's the same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, 
when he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, so on and so forth. Same word, and it, you could translate it happy. And what Jesus means, not that if, if, you know, while you're necessarily being a servant, not that it's always a happy, euphoric feeling. That's not what he's saying. But that you receive the happiness and blessing of God. That's what he's saying. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, that's something that you can take to the bank. You don't need somebody to pat you on the back and say, hey, man, I think you're doing a great... You don't need that. Sometimes people serve because they want the attaboy, the girl. Your blessing is from him, right? That's where, that's where the blessing is. If you know this, do it. Now, it is true, I think, that as you serve over time, the remarkable thing is that Christians are happier than people that possess way more possessions. Christians are happier than people that have way more popularity and followers on social media. Christians are happy because they know that they are walking in the way of blessing. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. There's, there's a happiness that comes from knowing that you are walking in the Lord's way, and that way is a way of service and servanthood. Well, next to verse 18, write the Lord's prediction, the Lord's prediction. And it's kind of interesting if you're looking at the flow of thought here. Why does Jesus now make this prophecy immediately after talking about servanthood. And I think he he does this for two reasons. One, because the blessing that he is just talking about doesn't apply to one person that's there. The, The blessing applies to 11, not to the one. Who's the one? Judas, obviously. The blessing only applies to the 11. So there's one connection. Other connection is he wants the disciples to remember that he is Lord that he is God, that this command to servanthood comes with divine authority. And one of the ways that they will remember this is that he will make a prophecy that will come to pass. So he says, verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Here he's referring to the choosing of the 12, that he chose the 12 and he chose them all for specific reasons. Yet he chose Judas knowing that Judas would betray him. And Jesus says this over and over and over again throughout the Gospels. He tells the disciples, this is John 13, 11. John says, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And then in John 6, verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Jesus exercised that divine prerogative. He knew that Judas Iscariot would ultimately betray him and that the blessing here does not apply to him. Now, then it says, look back at verse 18, but the scripture will be fulfilled. So this is one of the reasons why Jesus chose Judas to be a disciple to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. Specifically, Psalm 41. 
He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So talking about a friend, somebody who shares a meal with you, somebody who eats your bread, that's the person who betrays you, who lifts their heel against David and then against the Lord Jesus Christ and its anti-type fulfillment. If you look back, and I went back and read Psalm 41 this week, when you look back at the context of this statement, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, the context is, is that David is already down. David already feels like things are against him. David already feels like he's in a tough spot. And it's in that moment he says that the one who ate my bread lifted his heel against me. We were taught in the Marine Corps that, you know, the Marine Corps, we're not about playing fair. You know, it's, it's not boxing. And <laughs> they taught us this move in the Marine Corps, Marine Corps martial arts, yes, that's a thing, uh, called the Malayan monkey stomp. Now, I don't know where they got that, but basically the idea is when you get your guy on the ground, when he's on the ground, when you've got him on the ground, then you just stomp on him. It's called the, the monkey stomp. And, and that's, what, that's what is going on here. He's saying, when I'm on the ground, in that moment, in the, in the moment when things are going really poorly, when I've been rejected, that's when my friend put the heel on me. That's when the betrayal came. Verse 19. Jesus says, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So he's telling this so his disciples will remember that he, Jesus Christ, is a true prophet. Moses says in Deuteronomy 18.22 that you know a true prophet because what they say comes to pass. Jesus says, I'm giving you this prophecy so that you may believe that I am he. Uh, underline that phrase at the end, I am he. That's ego a me. That is one of those divine statements in the Gospel of John. He's saying, you will, you will know and believe that I am truly God when you remember the fact that I made this prophecy. And all of the events of Judas' betrayal and the crucifixion had according to, came about in accordance to the divine plan and fulfillment to the Scriptures. And you will know that it is truly my lordship in which I command you and compel you to be a servant. Last thing I want you to write, the Lord's preachers, next to verse 19 and 20. The Lord's preachers. Jesus says this, amen, amen. This is the blessing of the servant. This is our blessing on this earth. This is truly remarkable what Jesus says. Absolutely astounding what Jesus says. I say to you, you, you disciples, not to Judas, but the eleven, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You hear what he's saying there? That you, you're my ambassadors now. Isn't that what Paul says about us? We are ambassadors of Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. That if, so, if you are truly Christ's servant and somebody receives you, 
in so doing, they receive who? Christ. And in, so, in, in receiving Christ, they receive the Father. That is a remarkable stewardship. I wonder, in our lives, are we carrying out the Lord's mission like that so that it could be said of you that if you are received, Christ is received? Is that how you are known amongst your friend group? Is that how you're known when you show up for the tea time? That if you're received, Christ is received, and the Father is received? That you are the Lord's ambassador? It's a privilege. It's also a service that we are to take upon ourselves. Now let me give you three application points of this principle. Three application points. First, first, if you are a Christian, you are a servant. You are a servant. It's not that you try to be a servant. It's that you are a servant. If you are a Christian, you have become a servant. And if you are not a servant, you are not a Christian. You hear that? If you don't see yourself as a bond slave of Christ, I don't care how many times you've walked the aisle, you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are a servant. Paul, 1 Corinthians 4.1, this is how you are to regard us, as servants of Christ. The word he uses, huperetos. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a shield carrier. I'm a galley slave that rose on the third deck below. I am a servant of Christ. Jesus told a parable once called the parable of the talents. He said, the kingdom of God is like a master who went away on a long journey. And he gave one servant five talents. He gave another servant two talents. And he gave the third servant one talent. The third servant went and buried that one talent and did nothing with it. The other two servants put the talents to use and they multiplied it. Five to ten, two to four. When Jesus comes back, he calls the servants to himself to give an account. The servant who had won said, Lord, knowing that you are a harsh master, I buried it. Here it is. And Jesus said, you did not do anything with it. Depart from me. But you know what he said to the ones who multiplied their talents? He said, well done. Good and faithful what? Servant. That's right. When Mary, the mother of our Lord, found out that she would be carrying the Messiah, do you know what she told the angel? Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Jesus said, John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Heaven. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Friend, if you are in Christ, this is who you are. This is not who you're becoming. This is who you already are. So the second application point is be like that. If that's who you are, you are to serve. You are to have a demeanor of humility and service towards God and your fellow Christians. Of course, we're to serve all people, but Jesus' example of foot washing applies more strictly to the believer. He says you are to apply this service in the life of the church to other believers. Paul says in Galatians 5.13, 
For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So in everything you do, you are to be looking for opportunities to serve. Is any task too lowly for you in the body of Christ? Is any task too lowly? Is anybody, is anybody too great here to go serve in the nursery? Because there's a real need there. There's a need right now for people to go be foot washers up there. Is anybody too great to go be a sheepdog? No. Is anybody too great not to do a menial task? Nobody's too great. I read a story one time about John D. Rockefeller. Do you know that name? Richest man in, in the world at one point. He served as a janitor at his Baptist church. Hey, you don't have to pay me for it. Just go and mop some floors. Nobody's too great. Christ is great. And he served. So we need to have that mindset that we are quick to serve. There should be waiting lists in our church to serve. The director shouldn't be having to call people. It should be, hey, put me in the game. I've been on the bench too long. Where can I serve? I'm ready. I'm willing. No task too low. Third, that's the general demeanor. So first, you are a servant. Two, we do we all serve in, in numerous ways. We're all foot washers. We all are servants. That is our general mindset, our demeanor. We're ready to do any and every task. Third, as believers, we are called to use our gifts and our abilities for service in the body of Christ. And God gives everybody special gifts, and you are to use those gifts in a particular service that you are you know, God uses numerous Christians in, in different remarkable ways, but the call still is to use those gifts to serve. I was thinking about Francis and Edith Schaefer. Francis and Edith Schaefer. Uh, Schaefer was a pastor in St. Louis, nice life. You know, they, it seemed like they had uh, nice things going for them. Uh, he and Edith lived in a, uh, a 13-room house, they, they sold it all, and they left everything to go to a little two-room chalet in the Swiss Alps in 1948. And then in 1955, they started a, really a, a Christian conference center, a study center called Labrie. And Labrie is the French word for shelter. And the idea was this, is that we're going to create a shelter, a place where people that are searching to understand absolute truth, where people are searching to know the personal God, can come and hear the truth and come to know God and to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And over the years, uh, backpackers and searchers and atheists and Christians and all sorts of people would come into Labrie, and Schaefer would teach them, and he and Edith would serve them. And one of those people, have any of y'all ever read a book by Oz Guinness? Oz Guinness, a famous apologist, he was one of them. Uh, Guinness 
went to Labrie. And he said Schaefer's great insight was that he didn't just strive to reach cultures, but he said he he strove to reach individuals. Each individual, he said, has his or her own questions, personal struggles, moral brokenness. And Schaefer took all those individual people seriously and met them where they were and answered their questions one by one with Scripture. And Os Guinness said, quote, I have net, never met anyone with such a passion for God combined with a passion for people, combined with a passion for truth. That is an extremely rare combination, and Schaefer embodied it. There was another gal named Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael, as a young woman, went to the Keswick Convention there in England and heard a gentleman speak by the name of Hudson Taylor. And she left that event never to be the same. And she said, I feel called and compelled to go to the nations. And so she went to India And she founded in southern India the Donovore Fellowship. And basically what she did is she helped young women, young women come out of temple prostitution. And she rehabilitated them and led them to Christ. And she would eventually start a hospital there for them. Once a young woman wrote to her and asked Amy Carmichael, what mission life was like. And she said, quote, missionary life is simply a chance to die, end quote. It's service. It's servanthood. She was the Lord's servant. Francis Edith Schaefer, the Lord's servant. You are the Lord's servant. I'm the Lord's servant. And we are all called to general service, to humble service to our Lord. We are all called to use our gifts of service in the life of the church. And Jesus says this, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be servants of our master because that's who we are if we're in christ we pray lord that we would look to you and your example foot washing and that we would be foot washers that we we would we would be eager to serve eager to serve that our eyes would be on the kingdom of god where our blessing and treasure is that we would strive to be great in the kingdom by being servants here that we are banging down the door to serve you and other believers. So Lord, may that spirit permeate our lives. May that spirit permeate our church. May, Lord, we follow your example truly. May it be said of us that we are the Lord's diakonos, that we are your servants, that we are your bond slaves, your doulos. Lord, may we serve you all the days of our life. May we be spent in your service for the greatness of your kingdom. And we ask all of this for your honor and your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.